This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Bhatt. And I'm Sadia Khan. Invisible Hate focuses on true crime stories where the victims are members of a minority group. Every week, we are bringing you another true crime where we think victims may have been targeted. And then Asad and I discuss if it should be considered a hate crime or not. On today's episode, we go back to August 1999. Buford Furrow Jr., a 37-year-old heavyset white male from Washington State, drives his van down to Southern California. Inside the van are smoke bombs, seven guns, 7,000 rounds of ammunition, survivalist gear, and racist propaganda. On the night of August 9th, he starts scoping out the North Valley Jewish Community Center in suburban Los Angeles. No one notices him there. The next morning, shortly after several hundred kids who attend a summer camp at the community center leave for a field trip, Farrow enters the lobby without a word, he fires 70 shots with an Uzi in just a matter of seconds. One adult and four children are shot. 16 minutes later, he carjacks a woman using a handgun. About an hour after that, and eight miles away, he spots a 39-year-old Filipino-American postal worker named Joseph Aletto. Fro asks Aletto to mail a letter for him, but then reaches into his back pocket for a 9mm gun and shoots Aletto nine times, killing him. The perpetrator then abandons the car, takes an $800 taxi ride all the way to Vegas, and that's where he turns himself into the FBI the next morning. Wow, I said. So, first of all, I can't get over his ride to Vegas. Why was he going to Vegas, right? Yeah, there's a lot of details in here that are certainly mind-boggling. Right, but coming back to this tragic and senseless act of violence that resulted in the injury of innocent children and adults, it's cold-blooded murder. I find it so heartbreaking to think of the pain and suffering that the victims and their families must have endured as a result of this heinous act. Yeah, that's 100% right, Sadia. So before we delve deeper into this case, I just want to give you some context about when this was happening. Remember, it was 1999, and this was just four months after the school shooting at Columbine. Do you remember Columbine, Sadia? I don't Asad, I was in Pakistan, and I've said this previously as well, I did not pay attention to any news outside Pakistan. In fact, I wasn't paying attention to news at all. (laughs) So yeah, can you remind our listeners about Columbine? So the school shooting at Columbine High School in April of 1999 was a horrific event that shocked the nation and the world. That was when two seniors at the school killed 12 students and one teacher and injured 21 others. 
This was like a seminal moment in gun violence in America. Uh, the Columbine shooting had a lasting impact on American society and remains one of the deadliest school shootings in the country's history. There was kind of this sense of shock and disbelief that such a horrific event could happen in a suburban high school. You see, the Vatican led world reaction to the horror in Colorado. Pope John Paul is calling on Americans to respect the dignity of human life. In London and other major capitals around the world, the shooting grabbed the headlines. A Tokyo paper labeled America as a sick gun society, and Australia's prime minister called the shooting an act of terrorism. So Sally, you know, this shooting sparked a national conversation about gun control, school safety, and mental health. This is what people were talking about for like weeks, if not months. I remember seeing the live coverage on CNN and like just for months we were talking about it afterwards. And so then just months later, you have this guy, Buford Furrow, shoot up a community center where hundreds of children are congregating. It's just grotesque. And it's really a sign of what's to come in America in which school-aged children are routinely targeted in shootings. Absolutely, Asit. And we are still talking about gun control and we are still debating whether there should be sensible gun control laws in this country, which is so sad and it is so mind-boggling to me. I completely agree with that. So, Asit, why did Borough target the Jewish Community Center? Yeah, so earlier that year, remember it's 1999, Furrow began scouting Jewish institutions in Southern California. He monitored four of them, the Museum of Tolerance, the Skirball Cultural Center, and the American Jewish University. But security was most lax at the North Valley Jewish Community Center. And just a note, I'm going to be calling it the JCC from now on. So at the JCC, there are no locks on the entryway, no guards, no evacuation plan. Just a note that prominent Jewish advocacy groups have been pushing for implementing security measures at that location since 1989, so for like 10 years. But sadly, you just never think it's going to happen to you, right? Absolutely, Asad. And you know what? I did some research on Barrow. I just wanted to know who this person was. What I found out was that Farrow, like other people on our previous episodes, was a white supremacist who held extremist views based on racial hatred and anti-Semitic beliefs. He was a member of the Aryan Nations, a white supremacist group that promotes white supremacy and advocates for the establishment of an all-white homeland in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. Isn't that crazy, Asad? Yeah, that's absolutely nuts to think that that, you know, that's someone's uh, ideology for sure. Exactly. And Farrow's violent actions, including the shooting at the North Valley Jewish Community Center and the murder of Joseph Leto, were motivated by his extremist beliefs. Now, I said we don't know when exactly Farrow became a white supremacist, but he was known to have been associated with white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups for several years before his violent actions in 1999. Crazy, for sure. So anyways, on the day of the shooting, the JCC was hosting a summer camp called Camp Valley Chai, organized by the Jewish Community Centers of Greater Los Angeles. And Furrow just walked into the center and started shooting. Paramedics arrived just 90 seconds after a 911 call before the scene had actually been secured. 
One of the paramedics said that the first thing that he noticed was an incredible number of shell casings. Like he said that he hadn't seen that number of shell casings since he had been to a shooting range. Four kids were shot at the JCC, including a teenage counselor and a receptionist. The victims were a 16-year-old named Mindy who was shot twice in the legs. Her mom immediately knew it was a hate crime. A five-year-old named Ben was shot in the groin. He arrived at the hospital with no pulse or blood pressure. Six-year-old Josh was playing capture the flag and was shot in the back, just short of his spine and his leg, which was shattered. Six-year-old James was shot in the foot and 68-year-old Isabel Shalometh was shot in the arm and the back. All of them survived, thankfully. I mean, it's just amazing that they were able to survive. Furrow actually said later that he shot indiscriminately at the children and the receptionist. He just wanted to kill them because he assumed they were Jewish. So this goes back to what you and I have discussed so many times, Asit, on this podcast, perceived identity. And he assumed they were Jewish, so he killed them. So this pretty much seems like a hate crime, but obviously we will deliberate some more. By the way, what about Ileto? Why did he kill him? Yeah, so basically Faro said Aleto was a target of opportunity, that he decided to shoot him on a whim because he was a non-white federal worker you know, because Aleto appeared Asian or Latino to him. Wow. So the same thing, right? Again, perceived identity, perceived non-white Latino, and that's why he shot him. What did the police do? Yeah, so obviously a huge investigation began. The LAPD, the FBI, the ATF all identified Furrow as the only attacker for the shooting and the carjacking and for Aleto's murder. Remember that he turned himself in in Vegas. You know, they think that he might have been trying to throw the police off by going there, but apparently he saw his picture on TV the next day and decided to turn himself in. He told police that he wanted to deliver a, quote, wake up call to America to kill Jews, end quote. Furrow um, was charged by the state of California with five counts of attempted murder, one count of murder, and one count of carjacking. By the feds, Furrow was charged with killing a federal employee and illegally possessing a firearm while on probation. The most serious state charges were classified as hate crimes, and I should note that California at the time had hate crime laws that enhanced penalties for crimes committed against victims who were targeted based on religion, amongst other things. Under these laws, hate crimes were defined as crimes committed in whole or in part because of the victim's actual or perceived characteristics. Penalties for hate crimes in California were generally more severe than those for similar crimes that were not motivated by hate. Wow, so that's good. At least, you know, justice was served. But I wonder, given this happened just months after Columbine, what was the reaction from the public? I'm assuming the public at the time was not as desensitized to mass shootings as it seems it is now. Yeah, I think that's a great Great way to put it. Yeah, so this definitely made national news and helped to continue that kind of growing conversation about guns and the new gun violence prevention movement. What's interesting is that most people in support of gun control around that time were actually parents of kids being shot from gang activity, not school shootings. Elected leaders responded to the incident. President Clinton responded with a now familiar refrain of thoughts and prayers. 
And attorney Janet Reno mm-hmm. actually addressed the shooting and the need for better gun control and criticized Congress for inaction. Wow, I said, and it seems nothing has changed since then. I do have a quote from her from 24 years ago, and I just want to share it with our listeners. And I quote, we must decide now as a nation whether we are going to allow our culture of violence to continue into the next millennium or whether we are going to start into the new era with a commitment to tolerance and to peaceful resolution of our disputes and our disagreements, end quote. I said, this makes me so sad because now in 2023, we are still grappling with the epidemic of gun violence in this country and we haven't really done much. Congress hasn't been able to pass a strong legislation so far and it just makes me so sad as a mother and as a citizen of the United States. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think our children and students have been witness to or involved in, I don't even know, hundreds if not thousands of school shootings and, and other events like it. And so it's just, it's crazy to, to understand the scale of what we've been doing, what has been happening to this country since 1999. And our inaction, right? Exactly. And our inaction as well, for sure. So sadly, while the JCC shooting itself got tons of coverage, Aleto's murder received a lot less. The JCC victims actually remarked that they actually got a ton of support, like people sending in letters of encouragement and support for them. But Salia, this is going to make you really upset and annoyed. Aleto's family remarked that they actually got threats and hate mail sent to them in letters and in calls. Like these are from white supremacists telling them not to speak up, not to support gun control, not to be against gun violence and and all that kind of stuff. Just wild stuff. Wow, what the actual fuck I said. And then, Saudi, get this. The Aleto family was invited to sit in the front row of a gun control bill signing by the governor, but only JCC victims were acknowledged. Just so tone deaf. Wow. Meanwhile, you know, the shooting and the killing reshaped security at synagogues and Jewish institutions, as well as other houses of worship around the country. At the JCC, they installed gates, a guard shack, and an armed security guard. And then it goes without saying the shooting victims that were still alive were severely impacted. The children uh, especially faced PTSD and crippling anxiety. I said I want to go back to what you said about how Eletto's family was treated. And I've said this on my other podcast, Immigrantly and generally as well. I'm really wary of selective empathy and sympathy. I feel like if we don't recognize everybody's humanity and we don't treat everyone with respect and dignity, then we are doing something really wrong. And I can feel that happening in this case, right? Why do we have hierarchy of how we treat different groups? Every victim should be treated equally. So I just wanted to say this before I moved on to something else. But I also want to talk a little bit about gun violence and how it stands now, especially mass shootings. Now, My kids have participated in active shooter drills at schools, right, on a regular basis. And to me, it's 
part of their consciousness. It's something that they are so aware of, even when they were little, like when they were five, six, seven. And that really breaks my heart. I said, just imagine kids as young as five, six, participating in those drills, knowing very well that they are not even safe in their schools and in their communities. It breaks my heart. It feels like it's a very uniquely American thing, you know, to have this happen all the time, to have drills and for it to be in the consciousness of people. It's just really saddening. You know, as a parent to be Sadia, it's something that crosses my mind. You know, when we send our, our child to school, even daycare, you know, what does security look like? And it's it's sad that that's a part of the decision making these days. Absolutely. You know, one child victim, Josh, gave an interview talking about his recovery, and he said that the weight of it all didn't set in until he realized that he was targeted for being Jewish. And then, you know, suddenly he said he was startled by loud noises and sirens and didn't like movies or sleepovers because, you know, it happened when he was, quote, doing the right thing, having the time of his life. He figured that it would happen again. So he thought about how he could be more prepared the next time. For me, as I started to reflect on why I was shot, I started to think of all of the good things that came from Judaism as opposed to this one terrible thing. I started to remember that it's my view on life. It's making sure that I treat everyone with compassion. And that was more of what Judaism meant to me rather than a threat to who I was. Because he was still a child, he was resilient and didn't necessarily realize this behavior wasn't normal. He said his parents were really good at meeting him where he was emotionally. You know, eventually his parents sent him back to the JCC with their supervision so he wouldn't be afraid to be Jewish, but, you know, they still uh, shielded him from all the media attention. Um, and an interesting kind of disturbing note, multiple victims and their families talked about being doubly traumatized, first by the incident and then by this kind of happening over and over across the country and nothing changing, you know, gun control bills continuously failing at state and federal levels and school shootings and, and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I said again, I think we've said this a number of times on our podcast here, that when people are targeted based on their perceived or actual racial, ethnic, identity, sexual orientation, national origin. It's not just one person that is traumatized. It's the entire community that is scared and traumatized. And that's what happens. We are impacting communities. We are creating an environment of fear among communities, not just individuals. And that's something so important to recognize with hate crimes. By the way, what can you tell me about Joseph Ileto? Yeah, so Joseph was the eldest brother and head figure of a large, loving Filipino-American family. He was studying engineering at California Polytechnic at Pomona and working at the post office. He filled in for other mail carriers, so he was on someone else's route that day when this happened. And he loved playing chess and had been written up in magazines and newspapers for his skills. So just kind of like this really great guy and really wholesome kind of American kind of guy. 
And then as for Furrow, you know, I just want to note that uh, Furrow had a record. He'd spent five months in jail for threatening staff at a psychiatric hospital with a knife shortly after he tried to admit himself for homicidal feelings. And he was on probation at the time of the shootings for an assault the prior year in Washington. Hmm. I said, I don't know how I feel about that. Are we suggesting that he had some mental health issues? Yeah, I think I think he did, and and we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, it seems like he had mental health issues and was trying to get help for it as well. So what happened at the arraignment and the trial? Yeah, so he was facing two trials, one for the JCC shootings and one for Aleto's murder. At the arraignment, Faro actually smiled to the crowd and said to his lawyer, they like me, you know, referring to the crowd. And then, as you kind of alluded to, the prosecution and defense both determined that he had severe psychiatric problems. And so Faro ends up taking a plea bargain, admitting guilt to 16 counts, including one murder charge, six civil rights violations, and nine weapons charges. In exchange, the death penalty was taken off the table. The judge said to Faro, quote, your actions were a stark and brutal reminder that bigotry is alive, if not well, end quote. And then Faro himself actually read a prepared statement at sentencing apologizing. He said that he didn't, quote, harbor ill feelings toward people of any race, color, creed, religion, or sexual orientation, that, quote, the terrible trauma they had to go through was beyond his understanding and that he wished he'd been kept at the psychiatric hospital longer. So Faro ended up being sentenced to two life terms plus 110 years without the possibility of parole, appeal, or pardon. He was also ordered to pay almost 700000 in restitution to victims' families and insurance companies, plus a small fine to the government. Hmm. I'm glad that he's not coming out anytime soon. He's going to stay in you know, jail for the rest of his life, and that's what matters. As for psychiatric problems, I always struggle with this, and I've said it in the past as well. People with mental health issues most of the time are not violent. So I don't know how prosecution and defense determined. I wish we had more information on what that process was. How did they reach that conclusion? Because I wonder how we distinguish between someone having mental health issues, real mental health issues, and somebody just being plain evil and acting in that way. No doubt. I think that's that's definitely a great point. So I said, what's the latest? The student survivors and their parents became vocal advocates for gun control. Many of them joined various marches or organizations against gun violence and for stronger gun laws. In 2003, Farrell was found guilty by the California Fair Employment and Housing Commission of violating Aleto's civil rights and causing the family extreme emotional distress. He was fined $150,000 in compensatory damages and $25,000 in civil penalties to Aleto's estate. And this is the first time that the max penalty was given for a hate crime under California's Ralph Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, ancestry, or national origin in the state of California. You know, the family likely didn't receive any money from Furrow, but the ruling did set a precedent for families of hate crime victims to get financial redress from perpetrators. And then also, I just want to note that in 
2017, California passed the Disarm Hate Act, which prohibits people convicted of a hate crime from accessing firearms for 10 years, which just seems like a no-brainer. These are all civil mechanisms that allow for an individual who's at high risk of harming themselves or others to be basically disarmed and prevented from purchasing firearms for the duration of the order. So Sadia, you know, I think this is a pretty obvious case, but I think let's let's discuss it anyway. Do we, do we think that this was a hate crime? Yes, I said clearly he was a white supremacist and he targeted kids and adults at JCC because of their perceived Jewish identity. And then he also targeted Joseph Ileto because he thought that he was non-white Latino or some other race. So to me, it's pretty clear. I would say this, though, when we bring in added layer of psychiatric problems, I do take a pause and revisit how we should approach these cases. But in this case, honestly, I am more inclined towards calling it a hate crime because I really don't think he had psychiatric problems. And this may not sit well with a lot of listeners, but honestly, through his behavior, he demonstrated that he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that, you know, the level of preparation that he had, that he drove, you know, thousands of miles, that he scoped out the facility, that, you know, he had all this ammunition with him and, and all that kind of stuff really leads to the to, to the fact that it's a hate crime. But I, like you, I, I struggle with the mental health thing, you know, especially if he was trying to get help. Uh, for his mental health. Like you said, you know, someone with mental illness, you know, that doesn't <laughs> equate that they're a racist or uh, violent or anything like that. And so, you know, for him or them to use it as an excuse, you know, it's 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 a tough call. But yeah, I, I would lean as well that this is uh, more of a hate crime than not. You know, it is interesting that he did show remorse at the sentencing you know, I'd be interested to know a little bit about, you know, how he's thinking about things now, you know, 25, 30 years later. So I said, how can our listeners help? Yeah, so you can donate to the WAGV in LA, which takes concrete action by working with schools and gun owners and pushes for stricter gun laws in California and gun safety programs in cities, counties, and school districts. And then per Josh, one of the victims, you know, you can advocate for and vote for measures that cap ammunition or magazines and guns, that eliminate the gun show loopholes, that enact insurance on gun ownership, you know, all these kind of things that are just kind of like common sense gun laws. And I said one of our researchers found this important and relevant statement from safestate.org's project of the California Attorney General's Crime and Violence Prevention Center. And I quote, if you think you've been the victim of a hate incident or hate crime, you should report it immediately to your law enforcement agency. Reporting a hate incident or hate crime to law enforcement may keep others from being victimized. It is also important for law enforcement to be aware of what is happening in their jurisdictions so they can take necessary steps and provide resources to make the community safer. Let the officer know that you think you were a victim of a hate crime or hate incident. If words were used during the incident, write down the exact words 
that the perpetrator used in connection with the incident and anything else that would link the perpetrator to the incident and code that's really great advice and and not something that i've really thought about but makes sense for sure it is definitely great advice as a although i'm skeptical as to how many people who are being targeted would have the awareness at the time to engage in something so rational right a lot of people are just so scared and fearful so i i hope we can do that but irrespective of that it is great advice you're yeah, right for sure wow was it yet another important hate crime that we discussed another community that we were able to honor I'm so glad we are able to bring these incredible incredible stories to our listeners to create awareness and to hope for a better safer kinder world. Thanks for listening to Invisible Hate. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. As always, you can reach us at info at invisibleheatpodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Heat Podcast. Invisible Heat is a joint production of Refilion Media and Immigrantly. We would like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strother, Isabel Havens, Lindsay Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze and don't forget to share this and other episodes with a family member, with a friend who may be able to benefit from it. Until next time, I am Sadia Khan and I'm Asad Bhatt.